0: Good afternoon. My name is Mark Agrast. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this discussion of an important book just published by Free Press Less Safe, Less Free Why America is Losing the War on Terror. Professor Cole, the co author of that book, is here and will be signing copies of the book following the program. For the benefit of everybody present and our C-SPAN audience, may I please ask you to turn off cell phones, pagers, intelligence gathering equipment, and so forth. In this new book, Professor Cole and his co-author Jules Lobel argue that the preventive paradigm adopted by the Bush administration not only undermined our nation's character, but also has made us more vulnerable to terrorist attacks. The authors contend that this new paradigm has led directly to the detentions at Guantanamo, the use of coercive interrogation and torture, and the invasion of Iraq. They argue that there is virtually no evidence that the paradigm of prevention has thwarted actual terrorist plots or captured many terrorists while there is substantial evidence that it has made us less safe. They offer an alternative preventive strategy that favors non-coercive measures, multilateral cooperation, and support for the rule of law. This topic could hardly be more pressing or more timely. This morning, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing to review the recent changes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and to consider whether those changes should be uh, made permanent when they expire early next year. Today's New York Times carries word of a decision by the new Court of Military Commission Review that authorizes the government to resume the trial of military commissions or by military commissions of Guantanamo detainees accused of war crimes. Last week, the Senate narrowly failed to adopt a bipartisan amendment to restore the right of habeas corpus to Guantanamo detainees, a right which the last Congress eliminated. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is preparing to hear the case of Boumediene versus Bush, which likely will decide whether the law which bars such petitions is constitutional. With us to discuss these and other issues are, the two, are two of the nation's most thoughtful experts on civil liberties and the war on terror. David Cole is professor at Georgetown University Law Center, a volunteer staff attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights, a legal affairs correspondent for the nation, a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books, and a commentator on national public radios, All Things Considered. New York Times columnist Anthony Lewis has called Cole one of the country's great legal voices for civil liberties today. Nat Hentoff has called him a one-man committee of correspondence in the tradition of patriot Sam Adams. He is the author of two previous books, Enemy Aliens, which received the American Book Award in 2004, and No Equal Justice, Race and Class in the American Criminal Justice System, which was named Best Nonfiction Book of 1999 by the Boston Book Review and Best Book on an Issue of National Policy in 1999 by the American Political Science Association. David also co-chairs the Liberty and Security Initiative at the Constitution Project. Bradford Berenson is a litigator in the Washington DC office of Sidley Austin LLP. From January 2001 through January 2003, he served as Associate Counsel to the President of the United States. In the White House, he worked on the USA Patriot Act, the military order authorizing the use of military commissions, detainee and anti-terrorism litigation, and the creation of the new Department of Homeland Security. Berenson has also provided commentary on legal matters in the mainstream media. Publishing articles in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Times, and making appearances on news and public affairs programming on ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, NPR, CNN, and the Fox News Channel. He holds a BA summa cum laude from Yale University and a JD magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, where he was Supreme Court editor of the Harvard Law Review. Following graduation, he clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy at the U.S. Supreme Court. Our speakers come from differing views, differing sides of the political spectrum. They are both patriots. Both are longtime friends of the center and of mine, and we're delighted to have them both with us. We'll begin with David, who's going to give us a 10 to 15 minute summary some of the main ideas in the book. Uh, then I'll ask Brad to offer his response. At that point, I'm going to pose a series of questions to both of our speakers and then we're going to open it up to the audience for your questions. David Cole.
1: Thank you so much. Um, <coughs> I want to thank um, uh, Mark and the Center for American Progress for uh, for hosting this event and uh, in particular, thank Brad for agreeing to come here and uh, and, and debate me on this uh, on this topic. Uh, uh, it's uh, Brad is, a, is is I think one of the most uh, thoughtful and eloquent uh, defenders of the administration, and he's not afraid to go into the uh, enemy's lair uh, to defend his policies. Last time I think the last time we debated uh, was at the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee's annual national convention. So this is an easy uh, to audience for for Brad. Uh, It's also nice to see uh, so many familiar faces here, and uh, I used to assume that the unfamiliar faces were FBI agents, but um, I no longer uh, because now I know that with the NSA's uh, new capabilities they don't need to send FBI agents here, but we're not supposed to talk about the NSA. So, um, our our, our book, uh, Less Safe, Less Free, is, is essentially a critique of the Bush administration's strategy in confronting uh, the very real threat of terrorism uh, in the wake of, uh, of 9-11. And, and, and that strategy was, I think, best uh, uh, labeled uh, by uh, John Ashcroft before he stepped down, as David Letterman said, so that he could spend more time spying on his family. Uh, he said uh, that this is a paradigm of prevention. Uh, and, that, and and what he meant by that was, uh, you know, when, when when you face an enemy, who is willing to commit suicide uh, in order to inflict mass, innocent, uh, mass casualties on innocent civilians, it's not enough to, to bring them to justice after the fact. They're, they're dead, uh, thousands of, uh, of innocent people are dead. You wanna prevent the next attack from occurring. And of course, that is a, um, uh, th- that's something I think we all agree with. We want to prevent the next attack from occurring. But the paradigm of prevention as put in place by the the Bush administration uh, under the rubric of the war on terror, uh, in particular, involves the the claim that it is permissible to use the harshest coercive methods of the state, Uh, the power to detain, the power to inflict pain, the power to uh, go to war, Uh, not based on objective evidence of past or current wrongdoing, uh, as is the case when you punish someone after a criminal trial, or as is the case when you go to war uh, in self-defense in response to an armed attack, but rather based on predictions, necessarily speculative, about the future. Uh, And and, and so uh, three sort of, um, three uh, features of this preventive paradigm that sort of illustrate the point are preventive detention. The notion that you're going to lock somebody up, not because uh, we're, we're holding him uh, responsible for what he did in the past, but because we are afraid that he might do something in the future. So let's lock him up to prevent him from doing that in the future. Coercive interrogation and torture. Those who defend coercive interrogation and torture uh, always do so in preventive terms. Nobody argues. Not even the most adamant supporter of uh, torture argues that it is permissible to punish somebody for past wrongdoing, no matter how heinous the past wrongdoing is. Nobody argues it's permissible even to investigate a past crime. The argument is always to prevent the ticking time bomb from going off. It is justifiable to to inflict a little short-term pain on a suspect uh, uh, for that preventive end. And then, of course, the most um, disastrous uh, example of the preventive paradigm, uh, preventive war the notion uh, put forth by the Bush administration in the run-up to the war with Iraq, uh, that, that it no longer makes sense to abide by the international uh, law uh, regarding war, which is that a country can unilaterally attack another country only in response to an armed attack or in response to an imminent threat of attack. Uh, nobody claimed that Iraq had attacked us or posed any imminent threat of attack, but the claim was, uh, well, they, they have these weapons of mass destruction. I'm told President Bush is still convinced they have these weapons, we're gonna find them any day. Those weapons might be given to Al-Qaeda, even though Al-Qaeda and, and, and uh, Saddam Hussein uh, were not the best of friends. Uh, Al-Qaeda might then at some point in the future use them against us and therefore it's justified for, uh, for us in the name of prevention to go to war against a country which has not attacked us. Uh, so those are uh, uh, three examples. To make it a little more concrete, I'll talk about one of my clients, Maher Arar. Uh, some of you may have heard of uh, Mr. Arar. He was, he's a Canadian citizen who was returning from a, a trip with his family uh, in uh, Europe and was um, changing planes at JFK when he was pulled out of line by the immigration service, uh, locked up for two weeks, denied uh, his requests uh, for to seek counsel, when his family uh, hired an attorney uh, for him because they, he didn't show up at the Toronto airport, uh, uh, the, the, the INS lied to the attorney about where he was. Uh, and they uh, then ordered uh, Mr. Arar uh, deported on the basis of secret evidence, which he had no opportunity to, to uh, defend against. And, and, and to which he said, You know, well, I, I don't think I'm deportable, but, you know, I wasn't really trying to come to the United States anyway. Here's my connecting flight coupon. Uh, to Toronto and they said no you're not going to need your connecting flight coupon because we've chartered a federal jet for you and the only problem was that the federal jet went not to Toronto but to Syria Uh, and you got to ask yourself why would the United States take a Canadian forcibly redirect him to Syria except uh, for the fact that Canada doesn't have a record of torturing its suspects and locking people up without charges Syria does Syria did Uh, Mr. Arar was tortured Mr. Arar was locked up for uh, a year without charges, most of it in a cell the size of a grave. Uh, At the end of a year, released. Why? Because the Syrians found no evidence that he'd engaged in any wrongdoing, went back to Canada. Canadians investigated this whole affair at great length and great expense, fully exonerated Mr. Arar, uh, and in fact, awarded him $10 million in damages for Canada's part in the way the United States mistreated him. when we learned about that, my, my co-counsel who works for a, a, a private firm, corporate firm in New York, uh, sent an email saying, is that 10 million US or 10 million Canadian? <laughs> to me, it was a lot of money either way. Um, but, but, but Mr. Arrar was a victim of the preventive paradigm. We didn't have evidence that he'd engage in any wrongdoing. If we did, he'd be on trial in the United States, or if we had evidence that we didn't want to disclose, he'd be in Guantanamo. But he's in neither place. He was sent to Syria because we didn't have that evidence but we had some hunches and we thought well maybe they can get information out of him that we weren't able uh, to get out of him. So the argument of our book is that when you move into this preventive paradigm, uh, justifying harsh coercive methods based on predictions necessarily uh, 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 often inaccurate about future behavior, uh, you, com- you, you necessarily compromise fundamental principles of the rule of law, number one. Number two, uh, that in fact this uh, strategy, the preventive paradigm, has not uh, uh, produced what it promised, it, namely greater security for the United States. There's very little evidence that it has uh, has been very effective in terms of identifying actual terrorists, disrupting actual plots, uh, and there's sub- substantial evidence that it has had such a, a backlash effect that it has ultimately uh, redounded to our, uh, to our detriment. So let me, a- a- and then finally, the, the, the final part of our book is that this was uh, tragically unnecessary, that there are ways within the rule of law to, uh, to adopt a preventive strategy that does not have the c- negative consequences of the uh, of the bush administration 's uh, strategy, and that had we adopted those measures we wouldn 't be uh, uh, living in a world where anti americanism has never been higher uh, So let me talk very briefly about the sacrifices and then spend most of my time on the uh, on the, the results, uh, because I think the sacrifices are fairly um, uh, familiar, but I think it's important to keep them, you know, to, to sort of recall them. So, so one of the principal uh, values of the rule of law is equality. Everyone's equal before the law. Yet the preventive paradigm has been defended time and again by the administration with the argument that they, Arabs and Muslims, and especially foreign national Arabs and Muslims, don't deserve the same rights that we uh, white American citizens deserve. Uh, and that has been the justification for, uh, uh, for everything from preventive detention of foreign nationals in the United States uh, under pretextual immigration charges long after those immigration charges were resolved, uh, to uh, secret arrests and secret trials of many of those uh, foreign nationals, to the Um, uh, uh, the treatment of people at Guantanamo where the government argues they don't have any rights because they're foreign nationals outside of our borders to I think the most reprehensible position in terms of a double standard Alberto Gonzalez's view that the uh, international human rights treaty prohibiting cruel inhuman and degrading treatment somehow didn't protect foreigners uh, outside of our borders only Americans outside of our borders. This is a human rights treaty it's predicated on human dignity signed by virtually every country in the world and our position was it doesn't protect foreigners. When Congress found out about that of course it rejected it almost unanimously but that was the uh, the double standard of the preventive paradigm and the preventive paradigm pushes you towards that double standard because these measures would not be acceptable if they were applied equally across the board to all of us. You also see compromises on transparency. We've had secret arrests, secret trials, we've even had the state secrets privilege where the government claims that its Its assertion of secrecy means that even claims that the government has acted criminally and unconstitutionally cannot be adjudicated in court. So in Mr. Arar's case, the government says, even if we did send him to Syria to be tortured and even if that violates the international human rights law and the Constitution, so what? It's a secret what we did to him, even though it's been in the newspaper and Canada has published a thousand page report about it. It's a secret, officially, and therefore the courts can't adjudicate the case. Uh, fair process, the notion that before the government uses the, the harshest coercive methods it has, it goes through a fair process where there's a, uh, a, 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 a possibility to defend oneself. Not for enemy combatants, who the President Bush uh, claimed, you know, as long as he identified them as enemy combatant, uh, or as he put it, a bad guy, uh, they could be locked up forever without any hearing, without any access to courts or, uh, or lawyers. Checks and balances. Uh, The way the rule of law operates is that uh, the various branches have incentives to check each other, not under the Bush administration's theory of the commander-in-chief power, which they've uh, said gives them the the power to ignore and violate criminal statutes, the criminal statute prohibiting torture, the criminal statute prohibiting warrantless wiretapping, and uh, they even argued that it would be unconstitutional for the Supreme Court to exercise Review over the detentions of the enemy combatants at Guantanamo. The Supreme Court rejected that nine to nothing. Um, but um, uh, the, but the Bush administration continues to have this expansive view of the commander-in-chief power. And then finally, basic human rights, the sort of the cornerstone of of, of the rule of law. And here, all I have to do is invoke two images: Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. Uh, probably, the United States today is known better or worse throughout the world. For those images than for the Statue of Liberty. Now, when I make these complaints, you know, to 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 to, uh, to, to people like Brad, I don't think Brad will say this, but when I make these complaints to, to others, um, I get a response inevitably along the lines of, of the one I got from my colleague Viet Dinh uh, in a in a in an earlier debate, where he said to me, "David, you're so September 10th." <laughs> you know, and the, and the, so the notion is uh, the notion is, look, yeah, we had to make some compromises. But we're doing it for your security. We are in a new era. We need to make different balances, uh, strike different balances. So what about the, the, you know, the, the, the success rate here? Um, uh, and, and let me just review. This is the, the bulk of our book. But let me just review a couple of statistics, I think, to give you a sense here. The State Department issued a report a couple of years ago saying worldwide terrorist incidents had fallen for the first time in a significant period of time. And they said uh, Richard Armitage said, see, the global war on terror is working until two months later when Colin Powell had to come out and admit that they actually they miscounted uh, and, that wo- and worldwide terrorist attacks had increased. In fact, worldwide terrorist attacks have increased markedly in both frequency and lethality every year uh, since 2001. We know that Al-Qaeda has reconstituted itself fully uh, in the border uh, of Pakistan, according to our own national intelligence estimate, uh, and whole new groups have, have sprung up uh, to attack us, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, uh, like these groups without names of, uh, of, of individuals in countries like uh, the UK and Germany and Madrid who are willing to take uh, terrorist actions against Western, uh, Western targets. Even harder to identify uh, and, and, and respond to than Al-Qaeda, as difficult as that, uh, as that is. But, but there have been no terrorist attacks in the United States since 9-11. And, and whenever the Bush administration trots out that fact, which it does whenever it can, it ca- calls to mind for me, Tom Ridge's resignation speech where he trotted out that fact and then said, uh, and then knocked on the podium. And that night, uh, John Stewart played that on The Daily Show. And he said, Did I just see the leader of Homeland Security for the most powerful country in the world, knocking on wood? And indeed he did, and indeed Tom Ridge might as well have knocked on wood for the, what, the, what the record shows about what their particular, the homeland uh, initiatives have, have, have to show for them. So uh, take the preventive detention of foreign nationals uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. In the first two years uh, after 9-11, over 5,000 foreign nationals were detained um, um, uh, in preventive detention measures. Uh, uh, of those 5,000, not one today stands convicted of a terrorist defense. Uh, take the 8,000 who were called in for FBI interviews because they were young Arab and Muslim uh, foreign nationals. Today, not one stands convicted of a terrorist defense. Uh, take the 80-plus thousand who were required to come in for special registration, fingerprinting, and photographing uh, uh, before INS uh, on pain of deportation if they don't. Again, because they came from Arab and Muslim countries, the theory being we might find a terrorist, uh, not one, stands convicted of a terrorist offense. So in this, the most extensive campaign of ethnic profiling I think we've seen since World War II, the government's record is about zero for 95,000. Now that can't account for the fact that there hasn't been a terrorist attack in the United States since 9-11. Rounding up 95,000 people who are Arab and Muslim but don't have any connection to terrorism doesn't actually do anything except alienate that community. The government doesn't put that statistic on its various websites uh, uh, and reports about how it's winning the war on terror. Um, you might look at www.lifeandliberty.gov uh, for, the, for their side and they say, you know, we've, d- we've indicted over 400 people in terrorism-related cases and we've got over 200 convictions in those cases. Well, except when you look at those, it turns out that the keyword is related because most of these cases, the vast majority of these cases, don't have any terrorism charge in them whatsoever. Uh, they are minor charges like credit card fraud and uh, lying to an FBI agent or filling out a federal form falsely. Not, I'm not defending those practices, but they're not terrorism. Uh, and, and indeed, the Inspector General issued a report earlier this year criticizing the uh, Justice Department for inflating those figures by calling cases terror-related that had nothing uh, uh, to do with, uh, with, with terrorism. The New York Times and the Washington Post looked at all these c- cases and they found that there were only 39 that actually had a conviction on a terrorism charge. And we, for the book, we look at those 39 and what you find is that virtually all of them are convictions under this extremely expansive statute called the Material Support for Terrorist Group Statute, which allows the government to get a terrorism conviction, a terrorism conviction, without proving that the individual engaged in terrorism, planned to engage in terrorism, conspired to engage in terrorism, aided or abetted terrorism, conspired to aid or abet terrorism. All they have to show is that you gave some support in any fashion whatsoever to a group we've labeled as a terrorist group. Uh, regardless of your intent, regardless of the nature of your support. Uh, So that doesn't actually demonstrate uh, actual terrorists that we have identified. Um, About the only uh, person convicted of an attempted terrorist act uh, uh, in the United States since 9-11 is um, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. And he wasn't captured by virtue of any brilliant preventive paradigm strategy, but because this alert airline attendant saw this strange looking guy trying to light his shoe. Uh, There have been no Al-Qaeda cells identified in the United States in six years of intense focus on the Arab and Muslim community. Uh, At Guantanamo uh, we were told these people are the worst of the worst. We now know 435 of them, more than half, have been released. Uh, That the military's own tribunals categorize only eight percent of them as fighters for Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Uh, And of course the preventive paradigm's uh, chief uh, initiative, the war in Iraq, uh, has m- turned Iraq into a terrorist magnet, uh, the number one terror training ground uh, in the world, and led to the uh, loss of tens of thousands of American and Iraqi lives. Now, so, that, so, so, so that's what we have to show for it, but it's worse than that of course, and this is what I'll close with, um, we are, uh, w- w- when, a, when, a, when a nation pursues a legitimate end, And and seeking to protect ourselves from attacks like 9-11 is unquestionably legitimate. But when a nation seeks to pursue that legitimate end through illegitimate means, uh, it sacrifices the legitimacy of the entire enterprise in the eyes of the world. And when you do that, you countermand your uh, very uh, purpose. Because people who study how democracies defeat terrorist groups, and they do, they do say that the key strategy is to isolate the terrorist group it tends to be a small group of people who are actually committed to, to, uh, uh, to killing innocent civilians. Isolate that group from the larger group of ideologically sympathetic people who are in the communities from which that group uh, comes. And if you don't do that, if you don't isolate the group from the community. Uh, then you are, um, uh, you're, you're in a sort of never-ending, self-defeating uh, project, because if what you do is you alienate that community by, for example, treating them as presumptively suspect because they're Arab or Muslim foreign nationals, by failing to distinguish between mainstream moderate Muslims and people who are actually committed to violence, uh, then you drive that community to uh, move closer to the center, to be less eager to work with us, to be more supportive of the terrorists. The The, the UK found exactly this with respect to the IRA uh, in Ireland when it initially responded by, as we did, uh, Internment, prevent long-term preventive detention without charges, uh, and coercive interrogation. And it found that these things only created sympathy and support for the IRA within the community and, and undermined its efforts. So, in the long run, uh, the in the long run, what we need to do is isolate the group from its community, and, the, and we don't do that by undertaking measures that are seen around the world as illegitimate, precisely because they violate the most fundamental principles of the rule of law and do so in particular and selectively against uh, people in that community, Arab and Muslim foreign nationals. So I'll close with, a one, with one quotation. It's from um, Justice uh, Aron Barak, who was the president of, this, of the Supreme Court of Israel, uh, the court that has probably dealt the most with terrorism and the rule of law issues. And in a decision in which he, the, the court barred the use of torture to uh, interrogate Palestinian terror suspects. He wrote, a democracy must sometimes fight terror with one hand tied behind its back. Even so, a democracy has the upper hand. The rule of law and the liberty of an individual constitute important components in its understanding of security. At the end of the day, they strengthen its spirit and this strength allows it to overcome its difficulties. Our contention is that the Bush administration has weakened our spirit by failing to realize that the rule of law is an asset, not an obstacle, not something to be thrown aside uh, in the struggle against terrorism. Thank you.
2: Thank you all for coming out today. Thanks to the Center for American Progress for hosting this event. And thanks to David Cole for writing such a thoughtful and insightful book. I think uh, David Cole may be the one subject on which I agree with Nat Hentoff and Anthony Lewis. Um, it really is a very fine book with a lot in it that is, is food for good, careful thought. And there is much in the book uh, that I agree with. Uh, There was no question on the 11th of September 2001 but that the Bush administration or any administration of any party in trying to respond to the unprecedented uh, carnage that we suffered that day uh, was going to make mistakes. Uh, The Bush administration surely did, uh, both at the policy level and at the implementation level. Um, and I do believe, as, I've, as I said, that any other administration would have as well. Whether the Bush administration made more than its share is essentially an unanswerable question. But David, is, uh, David and his co-author are surely correct in their book uh, that uh, the, the case against torture and the use of torture or cruelty uh, under any circumstances is compelling. I think, likewise, the case against preventive warfare uh, is compelling. And in chapter nine of uh, of David's book, where he suggests some alternative defensive strategies, things we ought to be doing or assigning a a higher priority in trying to protect ourselves, there are also many, many good ideas uh, with which I agree. The problem as I see it with the book, and and I'm not not going to respond to David by trying to defend the administration's worst mistakes uh, or worst excesses. Uh, rather, what I'd like to do this morning is try to offer a somewhat different overall perspective to explain uh, where the administration is coming from generally, uh, why it took the approach that it did, uh, and to take issue at a general level with the overall critique of what, uh, what David has referred to as the preventive paradigm. I think the central problem with that critique is that it really goes too far. It ascribes uh, everything bad that has happened to the administration and its embrace of that paradigm, uh, and denies it credit for anything good that's happened, even to the point of denying it credit for the lack of any uh, additional attacks inside this country uh, since September 11, 2001, uh, denying it credit for uh, Libya's decision uh, to try to rejoin the family of of respectable nations and renounce weapons of mass destruction programs, denies it credit for having um, uh, helped to bring down the nuclear proliferation uh, operation that was being run by AQ Khan out of Pakistan. Uh, in short, I think it, it explains too much, and it's too one-sided. Now, a, a critical thing to understand, I think, is that the criticism level that the preventive paradigm is not really, in my view, a criticism of the idea of prevention or of a preventive paradigm generally. Uh, David, both in the book and here, acknowledges that it is extremely important for a variety of reasons to try to prevent another attack. And not the least of those reasons is the preservation and protection of our civil liberties. If one imagines a world where the 9-11 attacks and the anthrax attacks had been followed shortly thereafter by another successful spectacular attack that claimed thousands of American lives, it is not difficult to imagine responses by our government Uh, far more draconian than anything the Bush administration either contemplated or did. So the cause of civil liberties and the cause of our security are really bound up in prevention. It's a vital priority. I think the theme that really runs through David's book and what really distinguishes what he approves of and disapproves of is offense versus defense. Uh, The book betokens a very strong aversion to the United States playing any sort of offense. Um, David and his co-author would be happy to see more money spent on first responders, to see better container security, to see Nunn-Lugar fully funded to try to get control of uh, fissile materials, all good things. But when it comes to the United States actually trying to seek out, find, hunt down, and take out terrorists and dismantle cells proactively, That's where I think this book really gets off and parts ways uh, with the administration. Um, In particular, what underlies that disagreement over whether we should be on offense or whether we should be on defense is the difference between the traditional civilian law enforcement legal model and the law of war model. Uh, One of the president's first reactions after 9-11 was to say and to believe that we are in fact at war, not a a metaphorical war like the war on drugs or the war on poverty, uh, but a real war where we have an adversary who absolutely has the will uh, to destroy the nation and its form of government and its liberties, and who is actively seeking to acquire the means in a world where, really, for the first time in human history, that really might be thinkable, might be possible. Um, The law of war model, I think, explains all of the differences um, between David's favored approach and what the administration has tried to do. The things that David described as as features of of what he thinks of as the rule of law, Um, objective evidence of wrongdoing, acting only on objective evidence of wrongdoing rather than predictions about future intentions, Uh, punishing past wrongs providing equal treatment, transparency, responding to individual culpability, uh, due process before using coercive force, uh, clear rules articulated in advance. Those are all features of our familiar civilian peacetime justice system. They are all almost totally alien to the conduct of warfare uh, in this or any other era by this or any other country. And if you take the argument seriously that we are at war, if you believe that, then what the United States has reached for are the tools of warfare. Some have been misapplied. uh, There's no doubt about that. But as as a theoretical matter, those tools should be available. I think there's also a respectable argument that this war is different enough from some past conflicts that alterations and adjustments in those tools are appropriate. And slowly, our nation is groping its way toward developing some of those alterations and adjustments, uh, which are reflected in things like the Military Commissions Act of 2006, dealing with these court access issues for detainees. But, but think about it for a moment. Anytime time a United States airplane drops a bomb in hostilities, it's violating all of the precepts that David sets forth. There's no fair notice. There's no opportunity to be heard. There's no due process whatsoever for the unfortunate people on the ground on whom that bomb lands. And those people on the ground may deserve what comes to them or they may not. Uh, They may be uh, mistakenly targeted or they may be collateral damage, innocence uh, caught in the blast zone contrary to the wishes of the pilot uh, dropping that bomb, but that is warfare It's dirty, it's difficult, it's dangerous, it often presents morally ambiguous situations, but it is unavoidable when a nation faces a mortal threat and needs, as a last resort, to defend itself through force of arms. The same thing is true of preventive detention. The idea of grabbing someone and locking them up and not giving them a lawyer and not giving them A notice of charges and the ability to rebut it in a trial type proceeding is utterly offensive when we think of non-wartime contexts for all the reasons that David so eloquently describes. It is absolutely the norm in warfare. The situation of a prisoner of war is uh, an unfortunate situation. We can certainly sympathize with people who find themselves in that situation on a human level. But the risk of being locked up for the duration of the conflict is one of the risks that one assumes, along with others that are, uh, in many ways, even worse, when one takes up arms against a sovereign nation. During World War II, we held hundreds of thousands of prisoners uh, that we believed to be affiliated with the armed forces of Germany and Japan. Many of them had plausible claims that they were not, in fact, affiliated with the forces of Germany and Japan, that they loved the United States and hated Germany and Japan. There were Eastern European uh, forced labor battalions that the Nazis had dragooned. All of those people would have liked an opportunity to prove that claim and get out. But the exigencies of warfare made it unthinkable. It wasn't done then or ever. And so if we really are in a wartime legal framework, preventive detention of enemy combatants is the norm. Again, understanding that there may be differences between this conflict and other conflicts that justify somewhat more generous procedures. I think, in fact, there are. The fact is that after 9-11, when I was working in the White House, um, all of a sudden, uh, the work that I had been doing prior to that um, seemed almost like a a joke or a fantasy, the level of seriousness escalated so much. Um, A few days before 9-11, indeed the morning of 9-11, I was worried about judicial nominations. And within a few days of 9-11, I had to confront, literally, uh, casualty estimates from various forms of smallpox attack and release on this country. Or to examine the rings of the different blast zones and uh, levels of of damage and destruction that would be caused by a suitcase nuclear weapon. You ask yourself, what would it have been worth to prevent 9-11? I think all of us in this room would have to agree it would have been worth a lot. And yet these other scenarios, smallpox, suitcase nukes, would cause damage and destruction and misery to the citizens of this nation orders of magnitude greater than what happened on 9-11. I think in that context, it is perfectly understandable that the administration felt that it had to do everything within its power and everything permitted by a law of war model to try to protect this country. And I think very few presidents of either party would have felt differently about that. The truth is that when you are in the Oval Office, when you are controlling the executive branch, uh, when the tools of our nation are in your hands alone to help protect the citizenry, these issues look and feel a lot different than they do six years later uh, after there has been no further attack. And to some extent, the plea for a different approach, I think, misunderstands the history of this nation at war. It takes a somewhat antiseptic view of what is possible in defending oneself against a military, violent, mortal threat if we focus just on the administration of Abraham Lincoln alone we have him unilaterally abrogating the right of habeas corpus which almost no one thinks the president can do as opposed to Congress we have him locking up thousands of southern sympathizers with no charges whatsoever when the Chief Justice of the United States issued an order directing him to release one he simply didn't he refused and we could go through Similar examples from World War II and Franklin Roosevelt, similar examples from the Revolutionary War. Um, By the standards of our history, the administration's approach, whatever you think its faults may have been, has been quite moderate and quite responsible. And that isn't to say that it's been calibrated perfectly. It surely hasn't. But the genius of this nation at war is not that we get things perfectly right the first time. It's that through exercises like this and books like David's, we can take stock of where we've done right and where we've done wrong and make the necessary changes. We have elections where these issues can be thrashed out. And hopefully, uh, in the end, we find our way toward a better balance between the competing values that we're trying to serve. Let me. Uh, uh, let me close with a, a, a quick point about the argument that we are less safe cumulatively as a result of uh, what the administration has done. The the genuine force of that argument, and there is some genuine force to it, I think comes more from Iraq and from Abu Ghraib than anything else. Um, the, the other examples of the infringements on civil liberties from the perspective of people who believe them to be infringements, whether or not justified by the laws of war. Uh, I think the cumulative impact of all of that uh, is far, far less than the impact of the war and Abu Ghraib. But I would argue that the war and Abu Ghraib uh, are a categorically different problem. And we can have a debate about the wisdom of, of invading Iraq without necessarily indicting the whole effort to use the tools of warfare to prevent another attack against the United States. At the heart of the argument that we are less safe today than we were before uh, is the suggestion that international antipathy toward us rather than sympathy um, through a variety of manifestations is what has made us less safe. In fact, um, in the book David says, and I'm quoting at least loosely here, uh, anti-Americanism poses the greatest threat to our national security as we go forward and David makes the point that we had the world's sympathy on 9-11 it's undoubtedly true that we have to pay attention to the opinions in the rest of the world and particularly in certain segments of the rest of the world from which these threats arise I don't discount that entirely but it is also quite possible uh, to assign that too much weight in the hierarchy of values and I think David does that yes the world loved us on 9-11 the world seems to love us and extend its sympathy to us anytime we're on our knees and bleeding. But let us get up and start to hit back, and because we're so powerful, because we are the one hyperpower, immediately uh, the world's opinion changes. Remember that, that the world's opinion of us was extremely low, particularly in Europe, in the 1980s as well. Ronald Reagan was a cowboy. Uh, less, less safe, less free would have been a moniker directed at him, and probably was, throughout much of the 80s. Uh, Any America is acting aggressively to defend its own interests, a lot of the rest of the world gets scared uh, and considers, it, considers the world overall less safe and less free. And yet we know that through Reagan's strength and going on offense in the 1980s, uh, a terrible tyranny was brought down. And millions and millions and millions of people today are living freer than they were. So let me, uh, on that note, close with a quotation of my own. This is from the uh, English commentator uh, Walter Badgett uh, from the late 19th century. He said, history is strewn with the wrecks of nations which have gained a little progressiveness at the cost of a great deal of hard manliness and have thus prepared themselves for destruction as soon as the movements of the world gave a chance for it. We have to be very careful that in our effort to be progressive and in our effort to be sophisticated, we don't deny ourselves the ability to confront an enemy that is as illiberal, as unprogressive, and unsophisticated, and as ruthless and dangerous as any we've ever faced. Thank you.
0: Thank you both. Uh, the battle is joined. Uh, let me uh, ask a couple of questions of both of our panelists, uh, just to try to illuminate a few of the areas of uh, of difference and perhaps of, uh, of agreement. And then we will uh, go to our audience for their questions. Um, first of all to David, uh, and David uh, again has defined the uh, preventive paradigm as a form of anticipatory state violence undertaking before any wrongdoing has actually occurred and often without good evidence for believing that any wrongdoing will, in fact, occur. Uh, Brad has countered by saying that uh, uh, that is a good description of a, um, a law enforcement paradigm that is appropriate for various domestic purposes but inappropriate uh, in the war on terrorism, uh, which requires a what he calls a law of war model. Uh, AND HE'S ARGUED THAT THE TRADITIONAL LAW ENFORCEMENT uh, uh, MODEL IS NOT AN EFFECTIVE MEANS OF PREVENTING FUTURE ATTACKS. DAVID, uh, YOU'VE ARGUED uh, IN THE BOOK THAT THE TRADITIONAL LAW ENFORCEMENT MODEL ACTUALLY IS RATHER GOOD AT DOING THIS, uh, PARTICULARLY WHEN THE FBI HAS THE INFORMATION IT NEEDS TO GET THE JOB DONE. Um, BUT ISN'T IT POSSIBLE, AS BRAD uh, SUGGESTS, THAT uh, ANY NUMBER OF TERRORIST ATTACKS MAY HAVE BEEN PREVENTED? Through the use of non-traditional, non-law enforcement tactics.
1: Um, uh, that's a good question, and, and it allow, gives me an opportunity to respond uh, also to to some to Brad's principal point. Um, I, I think, uh, first of all, it's all, anything is possible. It's 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 difficult to know. One of the one of the paradoxes of prevention is that if you're successful in preventing something, nothing happens, and so it's difficult to really assess uh, what would have happened uh, had you not taken measure X or measure Y, we're all uh, speculating to a certain extent, um, but, I, but, but, but I, my, my sense is this, that if you have disrupted a, an actual plot, if you have disrupted an actual plot, you would expect to see someone held accountable for that plot. So, for example, um, in New York, we disrupted before 9-11 a plot to blow up bridges and tunnels around Manhattan. But we didn't just uh, claim that we disrupted a plot. We brought charges uh, against the blind Sheikh and his accomplices, and we achieved convictions, and they are spending the rest of their lives in solitary confinement in federal maximum security prisons, uh, s- uh, m- keeping us safe from uh, any future plots that they could. President Bush uh, made a speech uh, a year or so ago identifying 10 plots that that the United States or its allies had disrupted. Uh, And apart from uh, a plot in the UK that the UK had disrupted, uh, there wasn't a single person who had been uh, identified and brought to justice for any one of these alleged disrupted plots. And there were many uh, national security experts who um, raised serious questions about the reality of many of these plots that the president asserted had been um, uh, had been uh, uh, disrupted. So I, you know I think you, it's it's hard to say, but I think you can look at certain kinds of uh, of objective evidence, and uh, and you can say certain things about it. So when you have you know zero for ninety five thousand in terms of our ethnic profiling campaign, you can say you know rounding up ninety five thousand people who have nothing to do with terrorism does not disrupt terrorism, does not disrupt terrorist plots. Now le- let me let me talk just for a second about this war versus civilian uh, offense versus defense um, point because I, it's it, it is it's a it's a good point I think and and uh, an effective. Uh, rejoinder, but as Brad says of my book, it goes too far and explains too much. Uh, And and it does that for for two reasons. First, much of what the administration has done since 9-11 has not been within the confines of war. It's been in the domestic civilian setting. So we locked up over 5,000 foreign nationals uh, in the first two years after 9 /11 and prevented detention, none of whom turned out to be terrorists. They weren't accused of being al Qaeda enemy combatants. They weren't accused of being part of some war effort against us. They were Arab or Muslim, and they were residents of our country, and there was no evidence that they 'd engaged in any wrongdoing in any, any, any terrorist wrongdoing. So you can 't invoke war for those kinds of measures, the Patriot Act. Uh, in, puts in for place a whole range of uh, different uh, authorities, less checks and balances, uh, less judicial review, broader surveillance authorities, not limited to wartime, not limited to surveillance of the enemy, um, but civilian uh, changes uh, in, in, in the law. So there's a lot that's been done uh, in the domestic context. I don't think you can l- use the label war to defend it. Secondly, as to war we 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 acknowledge that war is an available option in responding to terrorism. There's a serious policy question about whether it's effective, whether it gives too much renown to the enemy, that they want to be called uh, warriors uh, in in Europe. This is the Principal criticism of the United States response is that you never should have called it a war. You you play into Al-Qaeda's hands by calling it a war. It gives them a kind of rallying cry, gives them a kind of status that, for example, the UK never gave the IRA, even though the IRA continually wanted to call it a war. So there is that policy question, but we take the position in the book that, you know, it's legal to respond to an attack like 9-11 with an attack, and we did in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, it wasn't just that the world had sympathy for us when we were bleeding, I think the world had sympathy for us with respect to the response uh, in Afghanistan. The UN said it was an armed attack justifying self-defense. NATO said it was an armed attack justifying self-defense. 120 nations signed on to that response. And I think that response actually can take credit for a significant amount of the the, the hampering of al-Qaeda's uh, ability to do a follow-on attack. We knocked out their training camps, their, their center of operations. We captured or killed many of their people. We got laptops and other uh, data that al- allowed us to find other people. But the critical thing about that is that was not the preventive paradigm. That was a traditional self-defense response. That's permissible. And, and in the context of that, it's also permissible to lock people up without bringing charges against them. Right, that's what you do in in a military conflict. But you got to abide by three basic principles, even in wartime. Law has its rules. One is you give them a hearing to make sure you're not locking up someone who's innocent and got picked up by a bounty hunter. Two is you treat them humanely. And three is you can only hold them for the duration of that particular conflict. Had we done that, had we abided by those three principles, Guantanamo wouldn't be a uh, a blot on our nation's uh, image around the world. People don't. Ab- think it's outrageous for a country to hold the enemy during a military conflict. But we didn't give many hearings. We said we don't have to give many hearings because we know they're all the worst of the worst, even though we've now released 435 of them. We didn't treat them humanely. Instead, we uh, did things like strip them naked, attack them with dogs, uh, make them wear women's underwear, inject them with IV fluids until they urinate on themselves uh, and the like in order to try to get them to talk. And we asserted the power to hold them not for the duration of the conflict with Al-Qaeda but for the duration of this concept called the War on Terror, which is, is I think, uh, 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 metaphorical or must, I hope it's metaphorical because otherwise it's a completely unwinnable war. President Bush said it's a war on all terrorist organizations of potentially global reach. Well, that's not a war you can ever win. That's not a war that will ever end. And so then you're asserting the power to hold people without hearings while treating them inhumanely forever. And that's what makes Guantanamo the disaster. So even in wartime, we're, we don't say you only you have to be on defense, but you have to be on offense within the constraints, much significantly less constraints, but still constraints of the rule of law.
0: Uh, and if Brad, if you'd like to respond to that. I have a, obviously other questions for you
2: as well. Sure. Um, the um, The question about whether the traditional tools of law enforcement or the civilian system are adequate to the task, which you started with, Mark, I think is an important one and and maybe the central one. Uh, And and the answer to that is that although those tools can play some part in keeping us safe and preventing attacks, they are not adequate to the entire task. We can't rely on them alone. Uh, I think that Uh, David's invocation of the zero for 95,000 because we haven't in uh, most of these prosecutions or in the immigration, uh, the roundups of people who had violated their uh, immigration status and were in fact breaking the law at the time they were rounded up, uh, didn't yield up terrorist plots. Uh, I think is, is uh, using a mistaken measure of success in these kinds of operations. Uh, because Al Capone was convicted on tax charges doesn't mean that that was not an organized crime-related prosecution. Uh, the, the measure of success isn't the number of terrorism-related prosecutions or convictions. The measure of success is actually something that is much, much, much harder to know which is sleeper cells and uh, terrorists and plots that were disrupted uh, by these actions. The administration rounded folks up pursuant to uh, uh, harsher enforcement of the immigration laws uh, in the hope, and I don't think we know, either of us today, uh, whether the hope was realized or not or in what degree, in the hope that caught up in that would be some people, if there, if there were sleeper cells here in the U.S. operating, if there was a second wave of attacks planned, and through more aggressive enforcement of the immigration laws, you could pick up some of the people who were part of those cells and planning those attacks, whether or not you ever knew it, you might keep the country safe, you might protect American lives uh... you know richard reed which is cited in the book uh, as a uh, an example of a successful use of the traditional tools and criminal justice system uh... for dealing with this threat i think is an illustration of exactly the opposite we have to find and catch richard reed long before he lights a match and puts it to his shoe, thirty five thousand feet over the atlantic ocean the lives of those passengers Uh, were fortunately spared by the alertness of that flight attendant and the people who were willing to act quickly when they perceived what was going on. But if he had merely stepped into the lavatory before lighting his shoe, that story could have had a very different ending. And so uh, it's not sufficient to wait until there is an attempt at a mass casualty attack like that. We've got to try to find these people while they're planning, get them off the streets, and whether we know they're planning or not, uh, anything we can do to disrupt their activities and their ability to be secure in, um, in, in operating is going to be helpful uh, to our efforts. Uh, Andy McCarthy and our new uh, nominee for attorney general, Judge Michael Mukasey, have both, uh, par- both participated on different sides of the bench in the prosecution of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Both of them have seen up close exactly what the trade-offs are when one uses the traditional tools against this kind of a problem. And both of them are passionate advocates for the proposition that law enforcement, while it has a role, is not equal to the overall task. Brad,
0: let me push you a little bit on that point. uh, One of the points that David makes in his book is that uh, the use of uh, uh, roundups and uh, uh, what he calls questionable assumptions, stereotypes, and preconceptions, Uh, detaining large numbers of people in dragnet situations uh, creates a high number of what he calls false positives Uh, from uh, detainees who are actually innocent to uh, uh, people who are wiretapped for uh, what turns out to be no good reason Uh, one could perhaps include non-existent weapons of mass destruction Um, and he argues that that result is not only unacceptable from a civil liberties perspective but actually undermines our ability to prevent terrorist attacks by getting us
2: on the wrong track Uh, do you disagree with that I do disagree with that Um, it is certainly important to focus on the false positives on the error rate in that direction Um, and we have to do everything we can to keep the error rate down consistent with taking the actions necessary to protect ourselves and I'm also willing to concede that in this kind of war where our adversaries deliberately disguise themselves as civilians try to make themselves difficult to identify and difficult to separate from the rest of the population which is in fact itself a gross violation of the laws of war uh, which are designed to protect civilians by requiring folks to clearly distinguish combatants from civilians Uh, in a war like this where our enemies fight that way I think the error rate is necessarily going to be higher than what it is in other kinds of conflicts. Uh, That's regrettable. It's also inevitable. We have to be creative and figure out ways that we can reduce that error rate, the false positives, Um, but we're never going to eliminate it. Uh, To some extent, how you proceed really depends upon the context. I think there is an argument to be made that at least after the period in time when the crisis passed immediately post 9-11 that immigration roundups targeted at Arab or Muslim communities uh, have more negative long-term effects than they do positive uh, effects even understanding that the people who are rounded up are out of status and and violating the law it is vitally important going forward for our government to forge good relations to the Muslim community and the Arab community in this country, because if and when uh, additional Al Qaeda agents arrive here, it's very likely uh, that those communities are the communities to which they will gravitate in the first instance um, to establish themselves. And good relations with those communities are important to protecting us. So uh, you, you know, to some extent, it depends on the context. The immigration question, again, after the crisis has passed, you might balance that out in a somewhat different way but it's also very important in thinking about the false positives to bear in mind the false negatives and the costs of false negatives. Too often this debate fails to take account of that other side of the equation. We know that there are false negatives even in the context of the Guantanamo detentions which are criticized as among the most draconian and least justifiable things the administration is doing. Yes, over 400 of the people originally brought to Guantanamo have been released through a combination of international pressure, the internal procedures that the military uses, some of the court actions that have been filed. Um, that doesn't mean that that uh, none of those people were dangerous. It, do, it doesn't mean that most of them were not dangerous, because many of them were sent back to other countries uh, on the condition that those countries keep an eye on them and essentially vouchsafe that they will not return to the fight against us. But among the 435 that have been uh, released through all of those procedures are uh, quite a number that we know for absolute certain, despite having convinced us that they posed no threat, that they were innocent, uh, have gone back to the fight and have been found on the global battlefield trying to kill our troops again. We know that because some of them have been killed, some of them have been wounded and recaptured, some of them have even boasted to the media Uh, after their release that essentially they tricked us. We had them sign a paper, and uh, one of them said, to me that was like toilet paper, it's nothing. Uh, So we have released people in error in addition to having undoubtedly imprisoned some people in error. And where the cost of such an erroneous release can be the enabling of another attack on the scale of 9-11 or worse, we have to weigh that into the balance as we consider where the sensible line is as a matter of policy.
1: Well, um I th- the, the the number I've seen of people who have gone back to the fight uh, of the 435 is 18. Uh so it is it is uh it's that's the number um as far as I know uh, maybe maybe it's slightly higher but it's not very high compared to 435. Uh we do have to think about false positives that's um true. I mean false false negatives we, uh, that is uh, that is true. Uh and there's always a sort of uh, balance between false positives and false negatives but I think Um, The the question you have to keep coming back to is the question that Donald Rumsfeld asked in an internal Defense Department memo, uh, I think in 2002, and he said basically the real question here is are we um, killing uh, or capturing more terrorists than are being created every day? That's the real question, and I think the danger with respect, and there's two dangers with respect to the kinds of measures that the administration has taken. And I also want to say I agree with Brad that that uh, uh, this is not an indictment of the Bush administration in particular. This is an argument against this kind of response, which we argue in the book uh, we would have likely seen uh, uh, many of these measures uh, with, with had uh, 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 Al Gore been uh, in office uh, on 9-11 instead of... Um, instead of uh, President Bush. Maybe they don't appreciate that message here, um, but, uh, but 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 I, I, I think that I think there's certainly evidence that uh, Democratic uh, liberal presidents have overreacted in preventive uh, measures. Uh, you you need only think of FDR. So it's it's not um, it's not meant to be a partisan attack. It's meant to be a, a word of caution about the costs of the uh, of the understandable response to the tremendous pressure to prevent the next, uh, uh, prevent the next attack. And, and I think that um, when you have uh, a lot of false positives, particularly through measures that are deployed and justified on the ground that we can target these people because they're Arab, Muslim, foreign nationals, and for little other justification, uh, that then the answer to Donald Rumsfeld's question is almost certainly we are creating more terrorists than we are capturing or killing. Uh, and and that's, that's why, I mean, you know, the, the 9-11 Commission says, we need to be reaching out to the moderate Muslim community. Well, it's very hard to reach out to them when you're rounding them up. And when you're rounding people up on the basis that they're Arab or Muslim and, and a foreign national and very little else. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and then, um, and Brad suggests, well, you know, you can't really know, just because we were zero for 95,000, who knows, there might have been an, uh, an Al-Qaeda cell there that we, can't, well, in fact, the administration's policy was called Hold Until Cleared where they wouldn't deport somebody uh, until the FBI had cleared them of any connection to terrorism because the last thing you want to do with a real terrorist is send them abroad where they can join the fight against us. So there's actually pretty good reason to be confident about that zero figure. Um, uh, And I I think, as i I suggested earlier, that 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 amount of false positives uh, is a uh, is a disaster from a, from a human rights standpoint for the victims, from a security standpoint for all of us. And the concern about false negatives can be, over, can be overplayed. Uh, you know, it was the concern about false negatives that led to the internment of the Japanese Americans during World War II. I,
2: uh, I agree with David that Rumsfeld's question is essentially the right one. Um, that is the right metric. It's a very difficult question to answer but I think it's it's the right question to ask but there's another question that I think uh, critics of the approaches taken thus far need to be able to answer themselves and uh, David and his co-author take a stab at this in their book but the question is this what would you do differently than we were doing on September 10th 2001 cuz the one thing we know for sure is that whatever we were doing back then wasn't good enough. 9-11 is all the proof most people need for that proposition. So I think there is a burden on critics of the measures that have been taken since 9-11 to say what it is they support, what it is they would do that would have had a realistic chance of preventing 9-11 itself and therefore would have a realistic chance of preventing uh, other kinds of attacks in the future.
0: While we're talking about prevention, let me raise one issue that uh, Uh, is uh, covered in David's book uh, and that's the issue of preventive detention. Uh, We've touched on it a little bit here and uh, I wanted to get to it because uh, I think David's discussion may surprise some civil libertarians, at least to some degree. Uh, He asks whether preventive detention can ever be justified uh, in cases in which the government has evidence that an individual is a flight risk or a danger to the community. And um, uh, David, you argue that uh, short-term preventive detention may be constitutionally permissible in narrow circumstances and subject to strong procedural safeguards. And among the safeguards you'd require are strict time limits on detention, a a prompt evidentiary showing uh, of the necessity for the detention before a judge, and access to a lawyer, and an opportunity to challenge the basis for the detention in court. Assuming your right and Congress could constitutionally enact that kind of system, given everything you've said, do you actually trust the government not to abuse that authority? Uh, As you point out in your book, the government's been holding large numbers of uh, foreign nationals without having a preventive detention law, um, even in cases where judges had ordered their release. Wouldn't a law of that kind make matters worse?
1: well that's a, that's a very good question and, and I and I am somewhat agnostic about it um, uh, the, the, I, I'm not agnostic about the position that it wouldn't necessarily be unconstitutional that is that one could uh, one could draft a preventive detention statute that would satisfy constitutional scrutiny after all um, you know we already engage in preventive detention in a variety of areas of um, civil commitment of people who have a mental disorder that uh, impairs their ability to protect, to stop them from endangering others, Uh, 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 sexual offenders who again can't control themselves and can be held after their time, they've served their time, Um, denial of bail to uh, criminal defendants when they are only defendants, not, convic- not convicted, still have the presumption of innocence, and yet we say if you can show that there's a danger to the community or a risk of flight, you can lock them up. You've got to have a fair process for doing that, but you can lock them up. It's got to be short term. Same thing for immigrants and immigration proceedings. Um, the same thing under the law of war for enemy combatants. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a, you know, I think preventive detention is not something like torture that it, where, you, where, the, where the, the, the only, you know, the appropriate legal response is it is never legally permissible. Uh, I think that, it, that there are situations in which it can be permissible. Now, wh- wh- whether it would be a good idea or not, you know, the question I ask is what if um, we had had on 9-11 a preventive detention statute that along the lines that I suggest that required the government to actually make some showing before a judge, et cetera, of danger and the like. And at the same time, we had um, uh, constraints on the immigration detention power, the material witness detention power, uh, so that they couldn't be abused, as they were, to further purposes that they were never designed to serve. Uh, It might well be that we would have a better, more targeted, Response: We might have fewer people uh, ultimately subject to uh, preventive detention. So, so I think if you could, co- some if you could combine a kind of uh, 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 the 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 creation of safeguards around the powers that government traditionally abuses to ob- obtain preventive detention in a kind of uh, uh, you know. Um, backdoor fashion, uh, and in and, and, and a quid pro quo, give the government a more targeted preventive detention statute, we might be in a better, uh, a better place.
0: Well, suppose we did that, Brad. Uh, David's proposed a set of requirements that would be fairly restrictive uh, and might, in fact, confine the use of that kind of authority to very um, extreme uh, emergency circumstances um... in that situation mean, c- could you live with that I mean, if it if it's if it's so hemmed in with due process yeah. guarantees uh... is that um, is that something that, that would even be useful
2: I, I think it probably would be useful we are still as a nation feeling our way toward the right set of procedures to deal with this threat um... specifically as they relate to preventive detention um, i've been an advocate for years since shortly after i left the administration of getting congress fully engaged in a policy making process on this and related issues Um, the administration uh... declined to do that for a variety of reasons until it was in essence forced to by the supreme court Uh, i think that was a a mistake and a uh, lengthier fuller more deliberative and more comprehensive policy process uh, years ago might have saved us a lot of trouble in the interim i don't think we've come to rest on this quite yet um, we have addressed part of it through the military commissions act of two thousand six but the constitutionality of that statute is under challenge and the supreme courts gonna hear that case this year and the statute may or may not survive we may again by the court be sent back to the drawing board but even if we're not i think what david is referring to is a preventive detention regime that is about civilians that is about individuals in the US uh, who are on our territory or who are citizens or lawful permanent residents or visitors have some other lawful immigration status so it would not answer the question one way or the other about what we do with uh, the Al Qaeda terrorist whom we capture in Yemen or the Taliban soldier whom we capture in Afghanistan that would still be governed by the laws of war as supplemented by whatever statutory regime we ultimately have, whether it's the Military Commissions Act um, or something else. But in the civilian context, I think David is right that that the temptation to reach for a tool not designed for these purposes, like the material witness statute, uh, like the immigration laws, would be much less if there were a tool that was designed for these purposes, and I think that would probably be a step forward overall, both for uh, liberty and security.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about interrogation. I want to get a couple other issues out on the table. Um, we'll start with Brad. Um, proponents of uh, harsh uh, interrogation techniques are, are fond of citing the so called ticking time bomb scenario, which David mentioned earlier, uh, obviously very familiar to people who watch television but uh, leading intelligence experts uh, have said that those kinds of scenarios actually have little to do with the real world and in his book david quotes uh, lieutenant general john kimmons who was the army's deputy chief of staff for intelligence as saying and i'm quoting no good intelligence is going to come from abusive practices Moreover, any piece of intelligence which is obtained under duress through the use of abusive techniques would be of questionable credibility and would do more harm than good when it inevitably became known that abusive practices were used. And instead, General Kimmons argues that good intelligence comes from the expert use of humane interrogation techniques that are authorized in the Army's own interrogation manual. If this is the case, what justification does the government have for insisting on the use of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques?
2: Well, I am not a supporter or defender of uh, aggressive interrogation techniques. I am a believer in the argument that uh, both as a moral and as a practical matter uh, and as a legal matter that uh, torture and cruel and inhumane treatment Uh, need to be categorically off limits Um, the only uh, exception and it isn't even really an exception uh... being the one that david describes in his book that is where uh... someone in the government is so convinced that it is absolutely necessary that they are willing to take upon themselves uh... the legal risk associated with intentionally violating those laws counting on the fact that they will be right in the long run and that the system will somehow find a way to excuse them. But I think as a, as a legal, practical, and moral matter, uh, cruelty and torture uh, should not be permitted and are not beneficial. You will get some differing views from interrogators um, about the value of tougher techniques short of torture or cruelty. Uh, the people in the FBI will tell you that stuff doesn't really work it's not very productive the kinds of techniques we've developed over the decades of of law enforcement um, which do involve um, dialogue and trying to gain the trust of the uh, detainee being interrogated work much better Uh, you will then hear uh, interrogators from the intelligence side from the CIA say yes but and the but is That's true for an ordinary individual who has not received counter interrogation training, which we know um, uh, formally trained and pledged al-Qaeda agents mostly have. And where you are confronted with a person like that, um, about whom there is the most concern and associated with whom there is the greatest risk, you do need to be able to do something other than simply have a conversation. Now at this point in time, the argument about cruelty and torture has been won. I don't think you'd find anybody in the CIA today uh, advocating those things. But uh, the president tells us, and I, I don't know, I was actually ignorant of all of this when I was in the White House. The president tells us that the CIA's high value detainee program now uses a list of approved techniques that go beyond what you expect in normal law enforcement but stay short of the line of cruelty or torture. I assume we have to rely on our intelligence committees in the Congress to uh, satisfy themselves that, that that is so, but the CIA people and some of the military people will tell you that something more is needed in the case of, of hardened terrorists.
0: Well, David, let me go over to you. Uh, you acknowledge in the book that the ticking time bomb scenario while largely a myth and, and mostly rare is not impossible. Uh, And you discuss a number of proposals that are out there that would authorize the use of highly coercive interrogation under uh, these kinds of emergency situations, uh, including the so-called torture warrant that's been uh, proposed by Professor Dershowitz. Uh, Now you oppose these proposed exceptions because they blur what is otherwise a, a clear prohibition and it could be said to open the door to all kinds of abuse. And I believe you argue that if exceptions are to be made, as Brad was saying, they should be made um, uh, tacitly and after the fact uh, when there is somebody who is convinced that um, uh, the law will vindicate them uh, later. Uh, But if we believe that interrogators may confront situations in which they have to bend or break the rules, wouldn't it be better to have that decision made by a politically accountable official, by the president, by the attorney general, or by an, an impartial judge considering a warrant?
1: Um, well, here I, I, I agree with Brad that uh, that, that there's a, it's a categorical uh, there's a categorical prohibition. It ought to be a categorical prohibition in international uh, law. Uh, it is uh, of the highest level of uh, of of prohibition, meaning it, ha- it 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 brooks no exceptions whatsoever. And there's a reason for that, and, and it's a good reason. Um, uh, and so I'm opposed to anything that undermines that categorical uh, the categorical nature of that uh, of that prohibition. I think that um, the, the, the the reality is that in any system of laws, uh, including the criminal law, uh, there is room for discretion. Uh, a, prosecutor, you know, a prosecutor who knows that someone has committed a crime can choose to bring a prosecution or not bring a prosecu- prosecution. He's not compelled to bring a prosecution. A jury which uh, is presented with evidence that the defendant committed the crime uh, has the discretion to um, acquit. It's called jury nullification, even if the evidence is uh, uh, conclusive that the person committed the offense. Uh, A president uh, has uh, unchecked uh, authority to pardon uh, someone who has been convicted of an offense. So there is already built into our system uh, a fair amount of discretion which could be employed were a ticking time bomb situation ever to arise in which, after the fact, we as a society uh, felt that this was a justified exception to the categorical rule. So I think that, I think, in other words, I think the law already creates p- plenty of room. Putting uh, in, f- in place a kind of pro, uh, 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 an ex-ante um, uh, uh, way of authorizing these kinds of things, first of all, it, it, it by definition sort of says we are going to legalize torture. You won't. You don't create a torture warrant system unless you think yes, torture can be permitted. We can and we can identify those particular things in advance, et cetera. And I, I don't think you can. Um, uh, and, and I think the cost of, of of undermining the prohibition by creating that um, that um, uh, ex ante approval would be uh, would be uh, 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 disastrous. The last thing I'll say is that. You know, the ticking time bomb hypothetical is a long-standing subject of debate in philosophical, um, you know, public philosophy kinds of uh, classrooms. But the reality is that not, I don't don't think once in the post 9-11 context has the government ever identified any instance in which they had anything close to a ticking time bomb. Even Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Right. the 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 mastermind of nine eleven who they waterboarded and and worse, we don't know all the details uh, um, they don't claim that there was some ticking time bomb that they that they knew that he had the information. they knew that the only way they could get it was by uh by using coercive tactics, and there was no other way to get the information, and they knew the bomb was going to go off if they no they don't claim that and uh, you know that's certainly not the claim at Abu Ghraib. so we have you, you know that that theoretical justification which I think led the administration <coughs> to authorize a whole set of tactics which most people would call torture and they call enhanced interrogation tactics uh, has, has, le- has led to a, a proliferation of this conduct in contexts that are as far removed from a ticking time bomb as you can imagine.
2: One interesting historical footnote to that is I think based on what I've read and as I say I wasn't involved in these decisions when I was in government, but I think that a perceived ticking time bomb scenario was actually the impetus for a lot of the loosening of traditional restrictions that took place which mm. led us down the road to, uh, to things like Abu Ghraib. Um, it involved the case of uh, Mr. Qatani, who uh, the government believed then and I think still believes actually was intended to be the 20th 9-11 hijacker and proved highly resistant to traditional forms of interrogation and uh, my understanding is the government believed that he likely had information about whatever second wave of attacks was planned and so I think he became the uh, the test case for these propositions and it was in part uh, some form of the ticking time bomb scenario uh... which caused the policy to be loosen it to be loosened uh, with all of the uh, negative consequences that eventuated
1: yeah and, and anybody who's interested, we talk about the al case in our in our book, but the there is a uh, hundred page uh, army document that was somehow um, leaked to Time magazine uh, that uh, details every tactic that they employed against Mr. Catani over a something like uh, almost a six month period of 16 to 20 hour a day interrogation se- sessions and he was the one who was injected with IV fluids uh, uh, and then not allowed to go to the bathroom so he urinated on himself and like and at the at the, at the close of this an FBI agent observed him and and describes him as someone who's kind of uh, uh, left uh, s- sort of cowering in a corner blabbering incoherently to himself and uh, I mean it's almost like you know an an, an animal that has been uh, has been rendered uh, inhuman by this uh, by this uh, set of tactics. So if that's the case that led to it, uh, uh, you, you've got the evidence for why we shouldn't do it right there.
0: Well, let me ask one last question and then uh, invite the audience to uh, uh, take the rest of the time with their questions. Uh, and this concerns another book that has recently been written. It's uh, Jack Goldsmith's book called The Terror Presidency. Uh, Jack uh, Goldsmith is a Harvard Law professor, Uh, who resigned from the Department of Justice after serving nine months as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel in 2003-2004. And his book uh, describes uh, really the, the, the pitched battles Uh, that uh, went on between the White House and the Justice Department over uh, the legality of some of the measures we've been discussing on detentions, interrogations, uh, electronic surveillance, which we're not discussing because one of our panelists is involved in litigation on that subject. Um, Mr. Goldsmith is a conservative uh, who supported the president's anti-terrorism efforts and wanted to place those efforts on a firm legal footing. But When he discovered What he discovered when he got there is that the policies were based uh, on uh, what he called severely damaged legal foundations, uh, and were based on, quote, minimal deliberation, unilateral action, and legalistic defense, close quote. Uh, And the legal opinions that had been issued by some of the lawyers at OLC, including uh, Jay Bybee and John Yoo, uh, he called sloppily reasoned, overbroad, and incautious, in asserting extraordinary constitutional authorities on behalf of the president. Uh, Eventually, uh, Mr. Goldsmith succeeded in getting some of those particular opinions withdrawn and revised. But he was clearly uh, swimming against the current uh, and ultimately found it impossible to continue. Uh, And now he has written his book. And I just wonder uh, if I could ask each of our speakers for their thoughts
2: on uh, the Goldsmith experience. Uh, uh, Jack is a, an old friend of mine and a thorough, thoroughly um, honorable individual and an absolutely uh, magnificent lawyer and I think there are a lot of lessons uh, from Jack's experience. Um, one of the profound insights that one comes away from a period of service in government with is how important personnel actually are, that is the individual human beings occupying particular offices at particular moments in time. History can turn on who is in the room at a given moment, and I don't just mean which executive branch official, I mean which human being has been invested with the authority of that office at that particular moment in time, how the conversation goes, how assertive someone is, how persuasive someone is, what someone's views are. Um, these are the kinds of things that that can exert an idiosyncratic influence on the course of events uh, the fact is that uh... after 9 uh... particularly in that first year year and a half the pressures were absolutely enormous uh... a sort of uh... i think understandable and justifiable groupthink took hold inside the executive branch inside the administration i think the closer you were to the Oval Office, the more keenly you felt uh, the weight of responsibility on the president's shoulders to assure himself and to assure the public that everything consistent with law that could be done was being done uh, to try to prevent another horror like those attacks. So there was enormous pressure. Under those circumstances, uh, the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department was one of the checks, and probably the most important check, in ensuring that that precondition to action that is that it was was legal would be taken the lawyers in the white house counsels office because of the velocity of issues and events that they're involved with generally don't have time to do in-depth legal analysis of really complicated legal questions that job falls to the white house's outside counsel which is the office of legal counsel in the justice department It would have been extremely beneficial and extremely important at that moment in time to have a strong, self-confident, confirmed Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel who had some stature, some gravitas, some expertise in the subject, and some political skills uh, to try to put the brakes on and draw the line in a place that was sensible. I agree Uh, with what Jack has to say in his book about some of the errors the administration made along the way. I also agree that they were made in complete good faith by all participants and they were made uh, in the genuine belief that that they were being done to protect the country rather than for any base political or personal motivations. Um, But the fact of the matter was that at that moment in time there had been a long confirmation battle and frankly nomination battle over the assistant attorney general for the office of legal counsel uh... the assistant attorney general who runs that office had been relatively recently confirmed was not an expert in any of these areas of law one of his deputies was and to make matters worse that assistant attorney general uh... wanted to be a federal judge and now is a federal judge on a court of appeals um, and uh, I I can't remember whether the nomination had been made or was simply under consideration but the assistant attorney general was not able to exercise the restraining influence of that particular office and that particular official at that particular moment in time that would have been so critical and so necessary and that's I think you know one of the lessons that that I take away from Jack's book Uh, personnel is policy And, uh, you know, there's no way you can foresee these things, there's no way you can guarantee that everything works right, but if we could take down the temperature on some of the confirmation battles, regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who's in the Congress, and make it easier and more efficient for the President to have the personnel uh, that he wants in the offices he wants, I think the chances of a failure, a personnel-driven failure of this sort, either because there's nobody confirmed or someone's awaiting confirmation um, or someone's awaiting confirmation as a judge. And so is steering clear of particularly controversial things, uh, the chances of that would be much less.
1: Thank you. David. Um, I think the president got his confirmation in Alberto Gonzalez and John Ashcroft, and and, and that's where I uh, lay a lot of the blame. Although I also um, think that, that Jack Goldsmith is right, that much of it, much of the impetus for the um, excesses comes out of the Vice President's office, um, Vice President Cheney who uh, a couple weekends ago Dan Rather, or not Dan Rather, Dan Shore on NPR uh, made a comment about how uh, Dick Cheney had to go into the hospital and he had to transfer the powers of the presidency to George Bush. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, the most powerful Vice President ever uh, with a uh, an, a, a counsel David Addington who, who takes the most extreme views and, and in Jack's book is the person that Jack is always fighting with um, uh, so in, in some sense I think you had uh, people there with pre, pre-commitments that were the worst possible people to have on the job when this incredible pressure uh, came after 9-11 and I think whoever was in uh, that those positions uh, uh, at that time would have felt that pressure and, and I agree with Brad and Jack uh, on that front as well, but but I, but I guess my my only um, point would be a, a, just a different emphasis it is precisely because the pressures are so powerful in those moments that it is so critical that we adhere to the rule of law and recognize that it is the way to respond to terrorism not by throwing it by the wayside and I think that, that where we got in trouble was by throwing it by the wayside and I come back to uh, a quote that I, uh, in the book, counterposed to Justice Barack's quote about how the rule of law is, you know, strengthens our spirit and at the end of the day uh, 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 brings us uh, uh, su- uh, success in the fight. And, the, and, and the, the, the counter quote comes from the Pentagon's official uh, document from 2005, the National Security Strategy, in which it says, the strength of the nation's state, ours, will continue to be challenged by a strategy of the weak using international fora, judicial process and terrorism. That is a remarkable statement because that statement treats the rule of law, judicial process and and, and international fora as a strategy of the weak, not for us. Dismissible by the strong and allies it with terrorism. Uh, And I would think that when terrorists take action like they did on 9-11, that the rule of law would be on our side. Uh, and, uh, and our argument in the book is that, it, just as Justice Barack says, it is on your side if it is properly understood. Um, but the pressure to respond, the pressure to prevent, I think um, caused the administration to view the rule of law as an obstacle rather than an asset, and that's where uh, uh, it got into trouble.
2: And, and And there I need to just disagree very briefly. I think it would be wrong to believe that the rule of law as such in an abstract sense is the answer to this problem because I can guarantee you that nobody participating in these debates in the White House, in the office of the vice president, in the office of legal counsel took law or the rule of law lightly or thought for a moment that they were setting it aside. There were conflicts and debates over how to interpret it one of the areas of law least well understood and with the fewest precedents on the law books is where the boundary of the president's article II authority uh, as commander-in-chief ends and where the role of congress begins and a lot of these fights uh... were at that boundary and so it was a matter of interpretation there were sincerely deeply held views on both sides um, david addington did not think for a moment that law didn't matter, uh, the rule of law didn't matter, law could be cast aside. He just had views of the nature of presidential war-making powers under Article II that would have rendered permissible, that did render permissible for a time, things that other lawyers wouldn't have agreed with. So uh, I just want to make that final statement for the, on behalf of the good faith of the participants in these debates on all sides, because I didn't see anything Uh, In my two years um, inside the White House working on uh, issues related to some of the ones we're talking about today that suggested to me that anybody was acting out of uh, base or venal uh, motives, but rather they were trying to do the best job they could under very difficult circumstances and advancing sincerely held beliefs, whatever you may think about those beliefs.
1: And, and let me just add uh, uh, to that, I, that by suggesting that they threw the rule of law out, I'm not suggesting that they were acting out of bad faith or venal motives. I think they felt that this was what was necessary uh, to save the country, to respond to this pressure. But uh, And I think that it is understandable that they would feel that pressure. But I think that's the reason we have the rule of law is precisely because we understand that human beings will feel that pressure and will respond in ways in which they quote-unquote, reinterpret the rule of law to, to, the, to the point where it no longer imposes any constraints on their actions. And that is exactly what the commander-in-chief theory does. It says the president, as commander-in-chief, if he's engaging the enemy in any way, shape, or form, it doesn't matter what Congress says. It doesn't matter what the courts say. Uh, the president gets to call the shots. That is putting yourself above the law. That is throwing the rule of law aside. That's why I think we need to... Uh, have a different attitude towards the rule of law. But again, I'm not suggesting it's an act of bad faith or venal motive. I think it's just wrong.
0: Well, that, uh, I think, is a good note on which to go to our audience. Uh, we're going to uh, have a question period now, and uh, please wait until I recognize you and uh, the microphone is brought to you, uh, then state your name and affiliation. Please be remember to use the mic so that uh, your comments uh, are recorded. Uh, Please don't make speeches, uh, because we'd like to get in as many questions and answers as we can. Gentleman in the front row.
3: Bob Griss, I'm here uh, representing myself. Um, Both speakers claim to want to prevent terrorism, and yet I'm wondering whether there are methods for legitimating the grievances of the weak that would be useful for making terrorism unappealing, not only to the broader community, but to the terrorists themselves. In other words, when bin Laden goes on, makes a video, to communicate to the public, uh, are there ways of responding in a non-police state fashion or even rule of law fashion that would help resolve the conflicts which I think ultimately um, create the the, the the crisis and make terrorism appealing?
1: Yes, I, and, and we address that in our, uh, in our book, in the prevention Part 3, the alternative preventive uh, 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 response, I mean, one response is precisely to try to figure out ways that the United States can act in the world that reduce the resentment that we face. And some people take the position, well, we're always going to be resented, so it doesn't matter. Let's, let's you know, make them have them fear us. I, I think that's wrong, and I think uh, that, uh, for example, one of the few countries where anti-Americanism actually dropped significantly in a period after 9-11 was Indonesia, a country with a significant Muslim population. Why did it drop? Because after the tsunami, um, we sent uh, President Clinton and former President Bush over there, and we put substantial resources into providing foreign aid for the victims. And they saw us as as reaching out through aid and through support, rather than Reaching out through military might, and so I think you know h- shifting so we we have uh, the, the 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 amount of resources that we put into the military in this country uh dwarfs that of i think the next ten countries combined uh, it's far beyond our needs and and when you look at one of the things that sort of is a push button issue for the terrorists, it is this notion that the united states is is acting through force and military might not through public diplomacy not through foreign aid so we spend tremendous amounts of money on military uh, force we put military bases in countries that are that are sort of rubbing the you know the nose and people's nose in it and and we have one of the lowest per capita foreign aid uh programs uh in the world in the world um uh and so i think there are you know i think that that's one that's one way that we could respond i think Uh, more multilateral efforts to respond as opposed to asserting this kind of unilateral right of America to respond regardless of what other countries do would uh, again present a different picture of the United States. I think a a greater effort to solve the Palestinian-Israeli crisis and not simply to back uh, Israel uh, would be uh, important. Uh, That that is a, a continuing uh, sort of uh, wound that uh, I think uh, creates tremendous resentment throughout the Arab and Muslim world, and we are perceived, whether rightly or wrongly, as being far too supportive of Israel and and not sufficiently interested in a fair resolution of that uh, crisis. So I think there are a whole range of, again, supporting moderate Muslims around the world, That things that we could do uh, that... Um, that would be effective in responding to those under, and I don't think by doing that you're somehow giving in to the terrorists. I think you're, uh, you're recognizing that you've got to answer Donald Rumsfeld's question. Th-
2: there are two senses in which uh, you might have meant that question, and if it's sense one, I think I agree. If it's sense two, I think I disagree. Sense one is uh, whether we should be engaging in more public diplomacy that is engaging with bin Laden's arguments in some public fashion to show why they're wrong why they're bankrupt to present the other side Uh, the process of persuasion and attempting to claim the moral high ground for ourselves and our values that proved very important in the Cold War Uh, I certainly agree that we should be doing that Um, but if by the question you meant legitimating their grievances in the sense of Accepting those grievances as valid and trying to appease them by accommodating their policy priorities—that um, is something I certainly would not support. To take just a couple of examples, um, David mentions military bases. One of Bin Laden's principal grievances is that we had military bases in Saudi Arabia, which, for uh, Muslims, at least of the Salafist school, is uh, you know infidels on holy ground. Um, I don't think that when we take a look at our national security interests throughout the world, whether they involve, um, uh, after the first uh, uh, Iraq war against Kuwait, protecting the newly freed Kuwait against the power of Iraq, keeping Hussein's Iraq in check, whether they involve supporting an ally like Israel, whether they're bound up with securing oil supplies that global economic health depends on, I don't think we can subordinate uh... those interests to the religious dogma of the bin ladenites and simply close our bases in saudi arabia um, because he doesn't like them um, you know other policy priorities uh, they the the salafists and the al-qaeda folks abhor our decadence uh... the taliban used to think that the appropriate response to homosexuality was to take a homosexual and bury him or her alive um, i don't think that there is uh any way in which we should be attempting to legitimate that kind of grievance or accommodate it. um, I think think, uh, if that was the sense of the question, I I would not uh, support responding in, in those kinds of ways.
0: Next question.
3: Uh, my name is Joanne Kim, and I'm with DC for Democracy. It's a follow-up to uh, this question. Um, so the, these grievances, are you are you suggesting point blank uh, that they're all false grievances? I mean, I, I, uh, it, it, you know, is, do we just, or, or are we approaching it with an open mind to listen and hear what the grievances are without prejudgment?
2: Well, I think it's important to listen and hear under any circumstances Um, and not just you know our intelligence community uh, listening and hearing but I think it should be part of the broader public debate to understand what these folks are saying but we shouldn't let that shade into a temptation to appease what are substantively illegitimate grievances I don't doubt bin Laden's sincerity I don't doubt that he honestly believes that his interpretation of his religion uh, gives him grievances which are legitimate in his own mind but we need to be very careful uh, not to start agreeing with him too readily. I mean Hitler always tried in the run-up to World War II to articulate historical grievances that were justifying the actions uh, that, that he was taking um, that one could try to argue with oneself and persuade oneself to accommodate and much of the world did that and I think we have to keep very clearly in mind uh, that this is a very extreme fanatical absolutist interpretation of a religion which drives this Um, that that kind of uh, religious tyranny is among the most lethal and dangerous because people who believe they have a mandate from heaven to do what they're doing uh, as we've seen will be quite extreme and that the values that lie behind this particular interpretation of, of Islam are illiberal in the extreme and fundamentally incompatible with most of the values that all of us in this room, Republican and Democrat, uh, pri- uh, prize most highly.
1: Uh, just to be clear, uh, we, we don't uh, uh, advocate appeasement uh, uh, in, in, in that sense, um, but I do think it's important to understand what drives people to take the kinds of actions that we have Seen taken against us, that Israel has seen taken against it, that the UK saw seen taken against it, uh, and and that that's an important part of figuring out how best to respond. And um, and um, Louise Richardson, who's a professor at Harvard and who studies what drives terrorists, uh, uh, argues, I think, with a lot of um, historical support, that what drives terrorists is not some sort of abstract, ideological, utopian end state because those are always very hazily drafted, et cetera. What drives them is a sense of injustice, a sense of a need for revenge, an, a, a sense that by acting out you, you might gain renown uh, and you might push the, uh, the, the country against which you are seeking revenge to take further responses uh, that only increase your uh, sympathy among your potential supporters. And, and that's where I think so many of the ways that we have responded is exactly backwards, because we are giving them injustices that will drive people to take further action. We are giving them renown by calling them warriors, essentially, uh, uh, and we are uh, overreacting in ways that have built sympathy for them, so that in many countries of the world today, Osama bin Laden has a higher approval rating uh, than does George Bush.
0: Last question. Yes,
1: sir. Hi. All right. um, hi, my name is Chris McConnell with the American Bar Association. I have a, a quick yes, no question with a follow-up. Um, is the war on terror strictly within the role of the government? And then the follow-up is, would expanding the application of the rule of law or this fight, where there's an absence internationally, create new partnerships for terrorism? Like, where is their community basis for fighting terrorism? I'm not sure I understand. Is by community-based, do you mean international community? Um, I guess With a? Uh, or, or the public. The public. Yeah, yeah I, well, I, I, I think that there's a. Um, I think it's that you, 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 you part of this notion that what you've got to do is isolate the terrorists from the potential communities of support is that you want the support of those communities in um, in helping you identify who the terrorists are so you can go in and capture and arrest them. So in that sense, yes, you want the support of the public and it's a particular public that you want the support of, the one that's going to be able to uh, provide you with information. So in that sense, it's, it's I think, a communal uh, responsibility and I think you have to think about the ways in which you respond in such a way that you will encourage that support rather than discourage that support and I think we've done it backwards. The other way, the other sense in which there's an importance of sort of community support or public support is that I think in a time like this it is critical that government have the trust of the people, because in a time like this, the government necessarily has to rely on secrecy more than it would in other times, for legitimate reasons. There are, as we know, illegitimate uses of secrecy, but there are also um, legitimate needs for secrecy. And whenever a government has, has to act in secret in significant ways, um, it's, it essentially has to rely on the trust of the community. And, and I was um, uh, struck by a comment I heard last fall in the UK by a former, the guy who used to head up counterterrorism for Tony Blair's government, who said precisely for that reason, it's absolutely critical that the government act above board, according to principle, I- consistent with the rule of law, because if you are discovered to have deviated from these sort of basic principles. Then you lose the trust of the people. And I think that's what's happened with this administration. It's lost the trust of the people. It's created uh, dis- I mean, we shouldn't be in discord about about uh, responding to Al-Qaeda. Uh, and yet we're in tremendous discord about it. Uh, I think because they have they forfeited the trust that uh, uh, by failing to abide by the principles. Grant, um, last word.
2: Yeah, my uh, my answer to your Question Would be no, it's not exclusively a governmental responsibility uh, to combat terrorism. Government is necessarily going to have a vastly disproportionate and important role because uh, the tools of the state, whether they be military power, intelligence agencies, uh, law enforcement, um, or public diplomacy, are in the hands of the government. So uh, the, the government is going to be a, a leading actor in this but clearly there's a role to play for communities, local communities, just in terms of vigilance. If one sees a very suspicious set of circumstances uh, in an airport lounge waiting area, uh, there's a role for any citizen to call that to the attention of someone who can make a judgment about whether it actually warrants some further questioning. Um, But more importantly, in the broader community, uh... that is uh... islam around the world i mean ultimately uh... this is a fight about whether a particular interpretation a particular fundamentalist interpretation of islam uh... is going to be seen as legitimate and laudable and is going to attract adherents uh... long-term or whether the community of muslims around the world is going to say uh, that this is not our religion this is not a proper interpretation Uh, these people are on the fringes and outside the bounds of acceptable religious discourse within our faith tradition Uh, there are probably only very limited ways that non-muslim nations uh, and governments can impact that internal debate within the world of that religion most uh, religious communities don't take particularly kindly to being told how to think by non adherents um but that community itself has something very serious to grapple with collectively as it moves forward and I don't know how long uh, that process is going to take of sorting this out, but I'm confident that in the long run it, like every other major religion over time, will come to the right conclusion.
0: Well before we close, a couple of quick announcements. First a reminder that copies of the book are available at the back of the room and our author is here to sign them if you wish. Uh, Let me also note that a video and transcript of the program will be available on our website at www.americanprogress.org. I'd like to thank the New Press. I think I misspoke earlier. I think I said Free Press. It's the New Press that published this book uh, and Borders Books uh, for uh, helping us uh, to distribute it, Uh, our wonderful staff who worked so hard on the event. Uh, And now please join me in thanking our terrific speakers.